Hey, it's you, my waterproofian. All of you, my waterproofians here to listen to another episode of Waterproof Records. And you know, when you clicked on this episode, you were like, he's going to be pretty excited to talk about this album. I know every week I say how excited I am to dig in and talk about specific albums from my youth, but this is a big one. This is a huge one. And I know that we just recently celebrated, depending on when you're listening to this episode, we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of Siamese Dream uh, by the Smashing Pumpkins. And that was just just a couple days ago. And but I did Siamese Dream very early on in Waterproof Records. If you haven't heard that episode, I think it's literally like number two. Um, It's one of the first albums I wanted to cover because it's such a big deal album for me. So I was trying to figure out what I could do because it is I was, you know, talking about the pumpkins so much. I'm about to see them in a couple weeks down in Irvine again. And I was like, maybe it's time to tackle this epic monster album that came out in 1995. So let's get to it. Let's play the theme song. Let's kick off the show so we can dig in. It's time to talk about Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by the Smashing Pumpkins. Let's go. If you're watching the show, you can see that I'm wearing my melancholy T-shirt. You you can see that I'm just smiling ear to ear. So ecstatic to talk about this one. And it's one of those albums that I didn't have to go and do a lot of brushing up and refreshing uh, my knowledge or awareness of the band. I when I do these shows, I always try to give a good, you know, listen to the album, read up some stuff, some things I already know, some things I discover during my research. But this is one that I was like, oh, I could talk about this album in my sleep, uh, let alone the experience of hearing it for the first time, getting it for the first time and just where it'll take me. I would imagine that it's going to be hard to wrap this up in a short episode. I'm sure I'll talk for a while because it is so big. But it also encapsulates such a specific time in my life. But before we get into the album, I'm excited, of course, to always tell you to check out distrokid.com, my sponsor. Distrokid.com, that is the way that you can get your music, your work out to the world and have them hear it. And guess what? They have a app now. They have an iOS app and it makes it so much easier because you can download the app and then you can, you know, you can pay for everything right there. You can get notified when you have money in your bank. It just makes the whole process really easy. You have these songs that you've recorded and you want to upload them or you just want to keep things you want to be checking in on things and see how how your music is being received and what you're getting paid and everything they just make it so simple i have some features right here let's see sign up and pay for a new district kit account using apple's in-app purchase or you can sign into one that you already have Upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank and withdraw earnings, get notified where you've earned royalties and withdraw from the app via push notifications. So many things that you should do. So I have a link, which is distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. And if you use my link, you get 30% off your first year. And that's a significant amount of savings. So I definitely recommend if you haven't used DistroKid or you've been uh, on the fence, whether or not you want to use DistroKid, use my link and you get that 30% off for your first year. I highly recommend it. So I'm so grateful to be partnered with them and I love that they support this show and allow me to keep moving forward. But now it's time. It's time to talk about melancholy and the infinite sadness. Yes, the t-shirt is on me. I've got it. I actually have a t-shirt from that tour from 1996. Um, it's blue and it has the heart with SP and it says melancholy and the infinite sadness on the back. Um, I bought that at the show. It's a little small. It's a little tight on me because I wore it when I was a teenager, but I still have it. Um, I was digging for it and I was like, you know what? I'll just wear this newer one that I have, which actually has the gal from the cover of the album on it. And uh, I got this not too long ago, so represents it really well. Um, anyway, it's so funny when I have these headphones on and this cable like comes over my shoulder and I have to throw it over my I have to whip it back like hair. I know I've, I've made jokes in the past. I'm like share uh, throwing it over my shoulder. Um, anyway, this album was released on October 24th, 1995 in the UK. And it says a day later in the United States. So October 25th. So right around that time, 24th, 25th is when this album came out. 
And what's so interesting is that, of course, my experience of melancholy is after Siamese Dream, is after Gish. But what I had never considered until I talked to somebody recently about this being your entry point, about this being your introduction to the band. You know, you you saw the video for Tonight Tonight. You saw the video for 1979 and you decided now's the time to buy this double album, this huge album. This might have been the first time you were even hearing about the Smashing Pumpkins. And that's so wild to me because for me, my personal experience was getting this album after I'd fallen in love with Siamese Dream, gone back, listened to Gish, started down the road of collecting those CD singles and B-sides and really becoming a diehard fan, and then anxiously anticipating this album coming out and what it meant for me at the time and how sonically it was changing so much from where we'd been on Siamese Dream. And that's mainly because Melancholy was produced by Alan Mulder and Flood, co-produced by those two, um, not Butch Vig. And it wasn't because they had any issues with Butch Vig. At the time, I believe that Billy Corgan just knew that he wanted to try this massive, ambitious project that the label was not happy about. People were saying, you're crazy. A double album, that's not going to work. This was definitely his idea to be like the next The Wall by Pink Floyd, you know, to do a double album like the Beatles had done. You know, double albums had been done before, but they were often by these mega huge bands that were well established. So having a double album was like, well, everybody will buy it. But this band was, you know, had some success, some MTV time with Siamese Dream, but not at the level of success where they'd say, oh, it's a it's a surefire. You could definitely put out a double album that's going to be a little bit more expensive and have the wiggle room to go all over the place in different styles and really change up kind of the sum of the sounds and dynamics of the band. But it's what Billy wanted to do. The band wanted to do it. They decided they're going to make this huge, huge ass album. And it's just remarkable that they were able to push through. And I'm so glad they did. And I know everybody was wrong. They were proved wrong. This thing was like certified diamond. You know, it, it sold so many copies. And so a lot of people that became fans of the band might have started here and then gone back and been like, wow, this doesn't quite sound like Melancholy does at all. But I was talking about Butch Vig and Billy Corgan, um, supposedly, from what I've read, had this feeling of like, this could be the end for us. And little did he know how true that would be. You know, that was like a kind of a seeing the future, if you will, as to what would happen after Melancholy, after such a big album with, you know, band members leaving and them kind of being fractured and going through such a hard time and resulting with the door and then eventually ending up in the end of the 90s and start of 2000s with Machina and the band, you know, coming apart. So this really was the beginning of the end. But he knew he wanted to try something big and they had such a deep rooted foundation and friendship with Butch Vig. He knew how to work with the band that I think that the fear that Billy had expressed was it'll just force they'll just be repeating the same stuff. It'll come up with the same sounds. It'll sound the same. And as you know, if you followed Corgan's career, he does not like to repeat himself. That is a big part of what drives his art and his creation is that he's always looking ahead. And I, I can honestly say as a as a huge fan of his entire career and the band's entire career is that always keeps you on you to on your toes with where we're headed next. And a lot of times. When you hear one of the later albums for the first time, you're not ready for it. And then it's it's after a while that you go, oh, I get it. You know, I, I won't go into those albums too much. I've got to stay on this one because it is a double album. It's massive. It's huge. But this is where Flood comes in. Alan Mulder. These are, you know, English producers who'd done Nine Inch Nails and, uh, you know, geez, so many albums that they had produced. I'm, I'm drawing a blank because it's a massive list. But um, huge producers. And you can hear... Siamese Dream, which is that warm, rich tone, that that early 90s guitar fuzz, that fuzz channel of the big muff pedal. This is where we get into some heavy guitars. And I would say that it's it doesn't I can't say that it's not warm. It just does get a little bit more crisp. You know what I mean? There's a there's a crispness to the recording of this much more um, some digital influences and and it changes from that from that warm tone to a much more like in your face, 
um, really aggressive on the guitars. And I remember when it came out, there were friends of mine that were huge into Siamese Dream with me. And they were like, uh, this is not for me. I don't like this metal, this heavy metal kind of sound with some of these songs and, and how hard he's going. And then all the avant-garde weird stuff. But I don't know. I just I was one of those people that it came along at these times in my life that it was so meaningful. And I'm going to get into when this album came for me and why it was such a big deal. So I, of course, was a big fan and I was waiting for this album to come out. And right before this, um, just to give you a little backstory on my life at the time, I have talked about that I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was my hometown. Those were all my friends. That's where I went to school. I had best friends, friend circles. I was in theater. You know, I played guitar with friends. I, I had a life, a community. And it was around this time, the summer before... Um, the fall of 1995, that we found out that we were going to be moving from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Wheaton, Illinois. I know I've talked about this on the show before, but it's very important that you hear how this is happening at this time. I mean, I think it's important. I want to share it. So we moved to Wheaton, Illinois, and I have to start all over at this school, Wheaton North High School. And I've left my friends behind and I, I have a girlfriend back in, in Tulsa that we, we continue on our relationship and we're long distance now, right? So I'm in this new town, I'm in this new school, and everything about starting over in the middle of high school is very difficult, very hard. You know, I, I think it's hard to move children at any point in their life, but right in the middle of high school, that's an awkward time. You know, I am 16 going on 17 and I had had a relationship with somebody that was very uh, meaningful. I was really invested in theater and community theater and now I'm starting over. Now I'm nobody in this school. I'm nobody at all. And I was a very extroverted, outgoing, talk with your hands, expressive kid, big surprise, right? And I go to the school at Wheaton North and everything about this environment is strange. Um, I just, don't seem to understand kind of where these kids are coming from. I feel really like an outcast. And I remember showing up and, you know, I did some weird clothing choices from time to time. And in this era in my life, I was wearing like white t-shirts, but I would go get um, suit jackets from Goodwill. that were kind of wild. So like I had this one that was like a really eighties looking purpley blazer, like a tux blazer with like this, paisley purple pattern on it or something and i wore that to school which made me look strange and i definitely got like teased and looked uh, from these kids that i didn't know so i was going through a very very difficult time in transition as a teenager in this in this chapter this is this is the fall of 1995 the fall of my um of my junior year and i was really feeling depression probably the worst I'd experienced it at this point, um, leaving behind, um, you know, a girlfriend that I, I loved and was very meaningful to me and all my friends, I just started to spiral downward and I'm incredibly empathetic. I feel very deeply. I it's, it's been a blessing and a curse in my life. I have a lot of emotions and sometimes they become completely overwhelming and I just don't know how to deal. And this was the first time that it got so bad, I felt so alone and so confused that I wanted to die. And this, I uh, this is a this is a triggering conversation for some because it is talking about thoughts of suicide. So if this is a little bit much, I understand. But this was really the first time in my life that I I wanted to die. I wanted to shut down. And the suicidal thoughts were pretty bad. Um, I, it's hard to say now, all these years later, if I really had the courage to go through with that action. Um, I don't know, but I was low and I just wanted to disappear. You know what I mean? Like the, the actions and the ideas of wanting to take yourself out were scary to me, you know, the act itself. But I just definitely wanted to disappear. I didn't want this to go on anymore. And I felt just so sad all the time. It just, it completely overtook my entire body and the way I was thinking. 
And my parents noticed. They noticed. They could tell that I was not doing okay, that I was not making this transition. Because I went to the school, Wheaton North specifically, I was a theater kid, right? So my parents had done their research. We were living in Wheaton, and I had a couple schools I could have gone to, but they specifically chose this school because the drama teacher, his name was Les Shomas, he had been the drama teacher for um, Jim Belushi, John Belushi, both Belushi brothers. He was the drama teacher for them. So they thought that would be a really cool um, experience for me to go to a high school where the drama teacher had, had been the teacher of the Belushi brothers. So he specifically chose this school for that reason and that reason only. Well, the first day of school, Les Shomas has a stroke and he survives, but he, he can't teach anymore. And I mean, he's, he's dead and gone by now because he was old back then in the 90s. So I'm going to the school to be under the tutelage of this drama teacher and he's not even there anymore. Um, now they're just bringing in some, you know, transitioning people from other departments over, bringing in some young new fresh faces to try to run the drama department. So I'm trying to get in, but there's already these kids that are established in this group, right? So I'm trying to find my way in. There's already the the funny guy, the talented actors. They're already in place. We're in the middle of high school. They've worked hard to establish it. So here I come trying to be funny. And I remember a lot of my attempts at being funny or being a good actor were, were desperate and sad. Cause I just didn't know how to behave. I didn't, you know, I, I replay those moments in my mind and, um, you know, I'm trying not to get too lost in this cause I know you, you tune in to talk about an album. So I'm trying not to, but so I got into the theater program and I mean, I, I got into some plays, I got into some productions, but the, the depression was so bad that my parents took me to a therapist and he ended up putting me on Zoloft and I went on Zoloft, um, during this year. Um, at some point in time, I think it was sometime in the fall. It might not have necessarily been um, before Melancholy came out, but it was it was close to it because the lows were low. Anyway, so, so this is October of 1995. I'm miserable. I'm suffering from depression. I'll eventually be going on Zoloft to keep my suicidal thoughts at bay. I'm calling my girlfriend back in Tulsa and crying and, you know, going through just through the worst time. I was smoking cigarettes. And you know what? My parents, I think they knew and they just kind of let me do it because they they felt terrible. You know, I was almost, I was 17 and I think they were just like, well, what are we, what do we expect of this kid? You know, like he's got to have some way of dealing with this shit. So anyway, I, I'll never forget when this album dropped because I'm living in Chicago, which is the, you know, the Chicago suburbs, Wheaton. And this is, this is the Smashing Pumpkin city, right? I'm close to the Metro, uh, you know, where they, they're going to be playing at the Riviera, uh, uh, Riviera. They're going to be playing a show the night before this record release, which I don't go to. I don't get to any of the Metro shows because I'm just so caught up in my own kind of sadness at the time that I don't even think to myself like, oh, you know, what would be great is like trying to go see the Smashing Pumpkins in, in downtown Chicago. But I remember this album's coming out. I remember listening to their radio station, Q101, and waiting for the debut of Bullet with Butterfly Wings, hearing it and just being like really taken aback and surprised by how heavy it was. You know, I can still hear in my head, I can hear the DJ talking over like the intro for the song and then the outro for the song because I taped it off the radio. I was so excited to hear it. And I was like, right away, I was like, whoa, this is not the Siamese dream. You know, yeah, you had the Silver Fuck and you had the Geek USA and those really heavier rocking songs. And I'd watched a ton of their tour footage from the Siamese dream era. And I'd seen just how heavy that they could get. And if you've ever seen them live, they can get really heavy. But this was, I'm hearing it in Bullet with Butterfly Wings, that opening line, you know, the world is a vampire. Just right gut punch right out of the right out of the gate. And I remember taping off the radio and being like, wow, that was unexpected. I loved it, but I was surprised. I was like, what is this? I can't believe this is the first song they're putting out. There are aspects of me that weren't ready, but I was ready. You know, it's just those mixed emotions. But when this album was coming out, the double album, which was like, I cannot believe I'm about to get two CDs worth of music from my favorite band in the world. And I remember it was releasing at midnight at Tower Records. I can't remember the name of the suburb that we drove to, but it was a Tower Records and it was near Wheaton. It wasn't it wasn't in Wheaton. It was like a neighboring town. And I, my parents were really going out of their way to try to help me deal with all this depression and sadness. And I remember my dad saying to me, like, I'll take you to go buy the album when it releases at midnight. And it was a school night. It was a school night. 
And my dad drove me to Tower Records to wait in line so that at midnight when they sold the album, I could have it in my hands. And that was such a special memory for me because like I've talked about before, my parents were a little strict and going to a record store at midnight on a school night was not something they normally would have done, but they were really trying to help me deal with all the sadness that I was going through at this time. So I get the album, get melancholy and you bring it home. I should have brought it in here with me. I should have brought it in here. You open it up and it's got that booklet, that brown booklet with the lyrics. It's got each disc. The the first disc is the day. The second disc is the night. I mean, it's just, it's got the whole feel, the aesthetics, the cover, the girl in the star, this kind of antique um, feeling to all the art. And I just recently learned that the image of the girl in the front, the the painter, the guy who put together the, the cover art, he was known for doing collages and collaging and putting things together. Um, his last name's Craig. Something's like John Craig. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm messing that up. But he had taken the face of the girl from one artist, some Renaissance artist, and then the body from another Renaissance artist, and they're put together. And I've seen both of the paintings. One's a girl holding, I think, like a like a sheep, and she's got her head back, and that's the face. And then the body is this other one. One's Raphael's painting, and I forget the name of the other artist. But I did. I never knew that. I thought it was just an original um, illustration of this girl kind of soaring in the star. But it's actually a, coll- a piece of collage of taking these two famous uh, Renaissance paintings and cobbling together. And I just found that out recently, which is really cool. But there it is, the look, the feel, the album, opening it up, knowing you have two CDs, the booklet inside. And I wish I had bought the vinyl. I wish I thought to buy the vinyl. I know I've shared with you before how lucky I was to have bought Siamese Dream on vinyl because of the impulse. And then later with Adore, I bought that also on vinyl because of the impulse. Even though I wasn't collecting vinyl, I just needed to have them. I wish that I had thought to get the vinyl of this back then. But... It was probably very expensive at the time. The idea of going and getting a record release at midnight with my dad at Tower Records was a big deal. So I think that just, you know, satisfied the need and the urge to have every single piece at the time. Um, Again, like I talked about, I was going through a lot of a lot of hardship. So I come home and I I get to listen to it. I think I I told my parents I wasn't going to listen to it because I had school the next morning, but I I found a way to listen to it in my room. Um, And. What a journey. Oh, my God. This thing from start to finish is like all over the place in the best kind of way. Everything that's on Melancholy belongs on Melancholy, if that makes any sense at all. It's it is supposed to be there. But there are some turns and twists and changes on this album that you just don't see coming. And as I was going through track by track, it was a lot. It was a lot because you're just you keep you. Oh, 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 you know, and then even by the time you get to the second disc, you almost are like at at amazing music fatigue. You know, you're like, I, I, I only so much I can process right now. So I remember I had to take a lot of time to digest these songs over weeks, if not months of obsessively listening to the album over and over again. And what a crazy thing. It opens up with piano. It, then the second song, Tonight Tonight, this big orchestral piece. You don't even get distorted rock guitars until the third track from this huge alternative band at the time. You know what I mean? Like, unbelievable. Here's this, the the pressure and the responsibility by these artists in this MTV 90s alternative grunge era. Guitars, distortion, rock. And this thing comes and it's got piano leading you in, in the most perfect way. Melancholy. And the infinite sadness, the opening piano, which when I when I hear that begin to play, it reminds me of just we're about the curtain is opening. We're beginning. It's it's all about to start that the play will begin now. And, you know, I followed the 33 podcast about autumn and how that is a very, you know, theatrical experience, like a big play, like a big musical. But this definitely felt like this as well back then. It felt like a show, a piece of theater, a piece of art. It wasn't just music. It was art. Starts out with that piano and then that Mellotron that's in there. It's just the perfect way to kind of get you into it. And I think that, you know, of course, as you listen to this album over and over again, you can sometimes just jump right into Tonight Tonight and not have to do the piece 
But if you take the time and you slow things down and you really let that song lead you into the album, it is the perfect hand-holding. It's like an arm reached out and just says, you want to come with me for a little bit? So if you have the tendency to just kind of jump in on this album, I encourage you, like, let that song grab you by the hand and pull you into melancholy and the infinite sadness because it's it's an experience. And then Tonight Tonight, what else could I say? One of the most recognizable songs from the band during this time. This is the Billy Corgan, James Eha, Darcy Retsky, and Jimmy Chamberlain era of the Smashing Pumpkins. And it is a collaborative era. It is a, there's more input from the other members of the band. They really seem to be kind of in this together in the recording of this album. And the entire process of putting this thing together with Flood and Alan Mulder was there was live jam sessions to get them into the energy of playing. Everything before was tracking and sitting in the studio space and not playing in the live space. You know, Billy and Jimmy getting the things done. I remember him saying that it was almost painful for the other members of the band just sitting around for weeks as they're overdubbing guitars and it just wasn't. It just didn't work well for them to, you know, just kind of sit there and wait for this thing to come together. This was collaborative. This was they're in it together. They're in a practice space. Several of the songs on this album were from live takes where they're all together. I mean, of course, they were dialed in and improved, but I'm pretty sure an ode to no one X, Y, U, maybe maybe through the eyes of Ruby, Porcelina, those big, full, giant rock songs. Those were together, you know, playing like, like, like they did live. And that's what flood wanted to capture. He had seen them live and been like, I don't think that we've really gotten the energy that they, you guys put on in a live show on an album. And I want to do that. So he had to capture that and had them play together. And there's just so much more involvement, but back to tonight, tonight, you know, the, the videos that debuted off this, of course, is bullet with butterfly wings. And this is everything about Billy Corgan and the appearance of the band is now transitioning and they're like action figures. You know what I mean? Like they, they have a, a persona like that. They're from another planet or we're like in a comic book realm up until this point. You know, we had the, the psychedelic groovy vibes of Gish. You know, we had the butterfly collar seventies Paisley, the long hair, the necklaces. It just felt like groovy psychedelic, you know, and then Siamese Dream has aspects and echoes of Gish with that wardrobe and style. But when we get to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, we start out bullet with butterfly wings. That video, Billy has not shaved his head yet, but he's got the silver pants. He's got the zero shirt on. It is the uniform. It's the look. And you realize you're like, this band is changing a little bit. They're transforming. There's something more ambitious here. This isn't just um, a rock band. This is a this is a piece of theater. This is a piece of art. And all of them, the silver, the black, the makeup, the style, and then the bullet with butterfly wings video, which is like got that muddy, you know, people climbing out of a pit and just you know Billy spitting off to the side during one of the takes and the screaming, the the ferocity um, on his face and just very intense. But when you get into some of the later videos, Tonight Tonight is a very standout moment. You know, this is Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who were prolific music video makers at the time. And this is that whole, you know, throwback um, to the journey to the moon, that old you know, silent movie. Um, they made that film. What is it with? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. I wish this is one of those times that you're I'm, I'm like should have come in ready. Um, it's that movie about the oh, man. Man, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. It's going to come to me when I when I don't need it anymore. But it's about the filmmaker that had done the silent movie pieces and everything had. Oh, I'm just going to pause for a second. I'm going to pause for a second. I got to get it. I had to stop because it was driving me crazy. I was like, it's right there and I can't access it. Hugo, the movie Hugo with Ben Kingsley. And it's about George Méliès, the French filmmaker who did the whole, you know, journey to the, the, the moon film. And that's what the aesthetic 
of the music video of Tonight Tonight was based off of. Uh, thank you. That's like one of the first times that I've had to just stop recording for a minute just to figure out what it was. Otherwise, it would just been like a splinter in my mind, like he says in Matrix. I would have just been like, oh, it's, it's eating at me that I can't figure it out. But that video, just the style, the aesthetic, uh, this antique old movie, it just... Who could forget the first time they saw that video? Everything about it, the the band and the suits and the the silent movie era shakiness and one of the actors in the in the video for Tonight Tonight is the guy who is the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants. I mean, come on. What a what a video. Um but that song with the streep the sweeping strings, the streeping swings, the sweeping strings just takes you to another place. And when you see it live, it's magical. When you hear it in this recording, it's incredible. Just, oh, it's just the most dramatic thing. And that's the thing about this band and this album overall is it's so genuine. There was a there was definitely a vibe and a feeling during this time of like you had to be cool. There was a lot of kind of self-deprecating, you know, ironic, sarcastic fear of selling out fear of taking yourself too seriously everybody there was a slacker cool you know we covered just last episode on on sonic youth so there was this energy of the time that you had to be you kind of had to have this level of disinterest and not wanting to sell out not wanting to be big and not let your emotions or the things that you're singing about to be like taken too seriously not the case with this band not the case with these lyrics and not the case with just the absolute 100% pure authenticity and genuineness. Just, I, I don't care if you say that's cheesy or, you know, despite all your rage, you're still a rat in a cage. People who had criticism for that lyric and being like, oh, really? But it's like, but that's genuine. He's just saying what it is that he feels and it's on, it's on paper. It's in the song. And that really, I think, influences who I am as a person in the videos that you see from me because I get comments all the time that say cringe cringe which I hate that fucking word I hate it I fucking hate it when people say cringe because honestly it's like look I understand if there's something that's like a, a, a bad thing that's been created you know something that makes somebody uncomfortable but I mean I, I at the end of the day this idea of something being cringe I'm like who cares? My response oftentimes is, we all die. Everybody dies. Your existence is here, gone. Nothing that you do really matters because it should just be something that you want to do and you care about and it's important to you. And when people come along and they say cringe, I'm like, just get, find a hobby, do something, occupy your time. Go focus on yourself for a little bit. It's just such wasted energy to look at anybody putting something out in the world and being like, ugh, awkward, cringe. It's just so, it's so lame. It's just such an empty response. It's such a, I don't have anything to bring to the table type response. It gets me. It does. And, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things when you make content on the internet, I'm just, I have to deal with it. I have to deal with it. People are going to say it because they're saying, okay, this guy's in his forties. He's a father of two children and he's expressing how much he loves a band or acting something out or being kind of a goober or being silly. You know, I've had people all the time be like, can you imagine being an old man like this and, and making videos on the internet? And you're like, and cringe. And you're like, dude. I'm going to die one day. You are too. This all goes away. I, I may I may be dead in 40, 50 more years from now. I may... Sorry, motorcycle went by. I might be dead in 40, 50 years from now. Or I could die like next year in an accident. I don't know. Knock on wood. I don't. But it could it could all just go. It's, uh, it all ends. So just like do what makes you happy. And the thing is, is that making videos about songs that I like bands that I like trying to be funny, trying to be silly, just trying to give a laugh. The positive comments I get it where they go, man, thank you so much. This is just really uplifting and it's what I needed and it's wholesome or it's the positive energy that we need on the internet. Those 
are wonderful and I love it, but I do get the ones that are very critical and I try not to absorb them. But I'm still that 16, 17 year old kid that had to go on Zoloft during that year, had to have his emotions muted because he wanted to die. That melancholy, <laughs> using that term for melancholy in the infinite sentence, that melancholy has never left me. I got off of antidepressants after that year because I wanted my, my highs and lows back. But I have always had this sadness that lurks within. And I know so many of you can relate. I have, I have a sorrow, a melancholy that sits inside and it just never goes away. And it's, it's been with me my whole life. And I don't, I don't know if everybody feels that way. I don't think they do. Because I've had a number of guy friends specifically in my life. And I'm just like, I don't think they live the way that I do in their head. I don't think they live the way that I do it in their heart. And that's maybe that's unfair for me to judge. But I, that's a lot of times in my friend circles, I have always felt like a, the odd one out for being as feeling and emotional as I am or to have the lows like I do. Um, it's just been a been a wild life of feeling this way. And I think in making content that I share and hearing stories and connecting with people like you, it helps me know that there's more out there like like we are that that music is the reason music is so important to me is that it really does keep me going in so many ways. I love being a father, I love my family. I love my children. I have a good life. I feel very fortunate. But it never changes that there's a there's something inside me that is always a little sad. I know I've talked about this on the show before. It's it's always going to come up. You know, it's always going to come up because we're talking about the things that really cut through who I am. And this album came at a time when I was so, I was so lost and sad and alone. And that's why when people say cringe or they're critical of the things that you love, you go, you have no idea how just existing is, how much it hurts sometimes. And the things that I find that bring me joy are what keep this existence going, what make me feel lucky to be here and now and alive. It's, it's putting my hands and my thoughts and my ideas on things that I love. It keeps me going. It keeps the fire alive. And if I give in to, oh, you're right, that is cringe. Oh, that you're right. I can't do that. That makes me look stupid. Or, Oh, well, I guess it's not as good of an album because so-and-so says blah, 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 blah. If I let that stuff win, then it, it, it would take me down. It would take me down. Oh, you listen to the show because you love music, but you're stuck with me. <laughs> you're stuck with me. You're stuck with me talking about some of these chapters in my life. I have I have so much resentment to the that Wheaton North and the the friends that I made in that year at that school. Not the friends that I made outside that school. I love you guys. My my friends that I made working at the movie theater, but everybody else at school god the worst became a group of friends and then just all turned their backs on me except for one but I have no fond memories of Wheaton North High School. They, they, they did me dirty. <laughs> I think I've talked about on videos about how I got kicked out of the musical, The King and I in the Spring, um, for being accused of mooning, even though I didn't do it. I think I've talked about that on the podcast. If I haven't, then comment on my socials and let me know, um, and I'll tell it next time but it was a, just a terrible year but this album lifts me up it takes me back to what I held on so dear 
this time, but we're going to be going on forever if I let these emotions take over and we don't just talk about the album, right? Jeez, we've already been going and I barely, barely touched on the, the songs themselves. So let's just, Jacob, take a deep breath. Take a drink of water. It's going to be okay. You made it. You're turning 45 in a week and uh, you're still here, still standing, and you have an awesome audience that loves and supports what you do. And um, I'm very grateful and I'm very fortunate. Um, I'm very grateful and I'm very fortunate. And I know that. Don't think I don't. I am. I feel very lucky to have you here and to share these things with you. So let's get to the album. Tonight, tonight, Jelly Belly, which is just a ripper, just just such a great song. They're playing it on this tour, and I think the last time they played it live was 1997. Jelly Belly is just it's just so the the distortion is so heavy, so thick. I have a good memory of my son, my oldest, being young. And he just liked the title Jelly Belly. So I would say I'm going to play Jelly Belly. And he just liked the title. I don't think he necessarily loved the music because it was very heavy and rocking. Um, and so far, my oldest doesn't seem to have the same interest in music that I do in that regard. He's not into the 90s alternative and the sound of like distorted guitars and stuff. He loves beats. The only place we really connect musically are, are is like post rock, like explosions in the sky and instrumental stuff but he composes too and he's very good he just is driven more by beats and kind of digital music whereas i'm a guitar guy so anyway jelly belly i'll always when i hear the name jelly belly i think of him but that's just a rocking tune and then we get zero another one of the huge ones zero is you know this gothic industrial almost heavier riff and the, that's that video where they're staring at you through the camera, you know, like cutting, piercing right through you as they're staring you down um, again in their garb and their silver and black and zero. And this is by this time we're in shaved head territory. So now this is the this is how we know Billy Corgan from here on out. And. Um, yeah, zero, just an absolute ripper. And then we go to Here Is No Why, which has that cool little kind of jazzy chord in the, the intro. I love Here Is No Why. That's an amazing song. And we talked about Bullet With Butterfly Wings before. Huge, epic, you know, the cage. That's my favorite part is when he screams cage. Um, then, you know, this is just you, you jump right after Bullet With Butterfly Wings into To Forgive, which just slows it down. Very heavy, very weighty kind of song that, that sits on your heart. Um, beautiful. And then you turn right around to a no to no one, AKA fuck you, which is the name of that song in, in reality. Uh, say it's a no to fuck you and no to no one, you know, that's the, that's the song title, but here in the streaming, it doesn't say what it really is, but I wonder if it says it on the Wikipedia, if it says the, the full song title and no to no one, it doesn't. That's funny. Oh yeah, no, it does. It says fuck you. And then in parentheses, an ode to no one. So in the streaming, you're seeing it just say an ode to no one. Well, that song is called Fuck You. <laughs> and that's one of the ones that Flood had them, I think, play in the live space. And you can you can hear that live energy. Then then here's another just complete left turn into love, which is just this like the dis the guitars sound like they're being run through like a digitally mashed computer. You know, it's like it's like what somebody would suggest future music would sound like back then it was like what is this what is this grinding at me a song is called love you know it's supposed to be a love song it sounds like it's a nightmare it sounds like you're in an insane uh case of love a dangerous love you know and then cuba deluxe cuba deluxe this is this do, -do, 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 -do. you know it's this ethereal harp sounds like you're floating on clouds with that 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 beating of the bass drum and just kind of ooh, and then one of my favorite underrated um, uh, songs off disc one is Galapagos. Oh, too late to turn back now. That part right there, da da da. Oh, gets me every time. That makes that brings tears to my eyes. How special that one is. And then Muzzle, which was never released as an official single. I think that got some airplay. It was never released by by the band or the label as like a single, but I think Muzzle got a lot of attention at the time, and that's a, just a rockin' song. My cover band, we we do uh, Muzzle 
We do a, a cover of Muzzle. And then you get to poor Selena of the vast oceans. Oof. Do I love it when the pumpkins do these massive big songs like that, you know, start so slow and quiet, you know, that build up of the guitar. And then when it jumps, it's like thunder. It just drops, they just drop out and, and the, that low octave with the drop tuning and it just, it just blows you out of your socks. Just literally every time I hear that, I'm just like, Oh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, take me down, which is where we end the album. And that is a James E. Ha song. And this is kind of what would, you know, set him up to start writing and singing more of his own music on his own. And, uh, this is really the first time that as a band, we get a chance to hear a James E. Ha sung, uh, you know, tune at the end of disc one, which I saw somewhere that there was a little bit of a, this caused a little bit of an issue with being placed where it was. Um, on the first disc of the, as the last song. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't know. It might've been, there was, you could tell that there's a bit of a, of a conflict brewing between the members of the band during this time. And we all know if you follow the band, this tour was tough. This is when Jonathan Melvoin overdoses on heroin. This is when, uh, and he dies the keyboardist and then Jimmy Chamberlain, you know, was involved in the, in the heroin problem. He's kicked out of the band for his own well-being, And I believe even during this tour, there was a kid in Dublin who got crushed during the concert. I mean, it was just, this was a rough time. I saw this tour. I think originally the tour date was scheduled for the summer of July, 1996 in Oklahoma city. And I think because of the death of Jonathan Melvoin and Jimmy being out of the band, they had to postpone the tour um, cause I have the sticker for it and it says, so the ticket says July, but the actual showing was in November of 1996, um, that I saw the show. And I think that that had everything to do with what was going on at the time. So this was a tumultuous tour that they come out of and then move into a door, but going into it, recording the album, there's a sense of unity, you know, the sense of togetherness, um, collaborative and putting the, the album together. And then you get to disc two. And again, we have a whole collection of songs. And by the way, they wrote like 57 songs that were whittled down to the 28 that go on this album. But this is like the most prolific Billy Corgan is um, in this era. I mean, he's still writing a ton of songs right now. But when you think about this time, the amount of music that was written, you know, he comes home in 1994 from Lollapalooza after touring on Siamese Dream. And the amount of music that comes out of that man during this time is astounding because so many songs were written for the album, whittled down. Then they have the airplane flies high that comes out a year later with all the singles and all these extra songs. There's just so much music at this time. It's kind of mind blowing just how much music was coming out of um, out of Billy at this time. And it was, you know, it had to do with his marriage ending, just the transition of his life. Um, you know, I know that his it was the the illness and and his mother. They're just this is a a tough time. And a lot of the music was coming out of him was, was, I mean, this is an incredible era of songwriting, but then we get to disc two and boy, oh boy, does it open up with a, a, another amazing rock song where boys fear to tread and then goes right into bodies. Just one, two punch, super heavy riff driven, heavy songs, you know, bodies love is suicide. I mean that just, wow. And, and that riff on, the way the boys fear to tread comes in with that do boom, 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 you know, just you're get ready, get ready. You thought that disc one took you some places. Now we're going to go to other places. And then you get to 33, which had a beautiful, just nostalgic. It was like looking back on, on time and life and just had you hit the pause button. That was a single that got them a lot of airplay and a, a music video with that stop animation kind of look to everything. But this is this, this album is releasing so many singles that takes the smashing pumpkins from this alternative rock band. That would be something only on alternative radio and they're crossing over, you know, they're, they're jumping over to pop radio stations because songs like 1979, which I'm about to get to then in the arms of sleep, another very peaceful, calming one. And then we get to 1979, the song that, was like almost not on the album that was thrown together at the last moment. 
very new order inspired. But I, I would say probably between tonight, tonight and 1979, those are probably the two songs that if you met a stranger and you reference this band, you just have to point to one of those and then, and they'd know who you're talking about. 1979 is the one that went everywhere, everywhere, right? It crossed over. It was a, it was a rock pop hit and it just the looking back to 1979 wall in the 90s and now we look back and on the song 1979 it reminds us of that nostalgia of the 90s the video with the teenagers running around and you know acting up in a convenience store being in a house party falling in a pool falling in love kissing going for a drive being a little bit reckless and destructive i mean it was just exactly what we needed to see at that time it really embodies this this time in my life where i felt you know I felt like I wanted to burn it all down. This is that catcher in the rye time in your life, right? This is that Holden Caulfield, your, your, your anger at the adults, your anger at the world, your anger at the system is really building up inside because you're feeling let down and you're just like, I don't give a shit. You know, I had already come to grips that I had, had wanted, I had suicidal thoughts. I wanted to die. And so you have this kind of like, well, I don't care. I don't care if I smoke. I don't care if I steal I don't care if I if we run around at night in a car and do something that's a little bit destructive because you do have this fuck it all. I don't care. Nothing. Nothing matters. And hopefully you grow out of that. I did. I didn't grow out of the sadness, but I, I learned to care and value people and life and know that it's going to be OK. But this is why these cliches exist, right? It's because you're a teenager and you're angry at the world. Things aren't working out. Your hormones are going crazy. You're a mess. The people you thought with your, your friends are not your friends. People stab you in the back. Heartbreak. It all, you know, 1979. You watch that and you go, that really sums up kind of this feeling I have right now is that I want to party because it's, it's, could all be over, right? That song, the um, Shakedown 1979, I think I just learned recently that he's not saying 79, 79, because it just, the flow of it, right? Um, it's wild to me. It's not 79, he's just saying 79. Uh, 1979. I mean, maybe he does say 79. There was, there was a video on TikTok where somebody said that the rhythm of it, it was, it was tricky because it was 1979 and it was like, it didn't fit right with the 70 in there. But anyway, I don't know. I feel like I hear it both ways. I hear a little, I'm, I'm what a, what a random thing to not fully research and know before we talked. Um, where are we? So 33 in the arms of sleep, 1979 in tales of scorched earth. Oh my God. This is a song that you kind of had to skip if you weren't ready for it. Right. You, I listen to it. I still love this song. It's brutal. It'll tear you a new one, but if you're not ready for, you know, tales of a scorched earth, then you just got to hit track skip. You got to just zoom forward. Cause this thing is just like, it's as if you've, you've just gotten through 1979 and it's time to burn it all down. <laughs> You know what I mean? It sounds like what a riot would sound like in your in your instruments. Like everything is just completely going to explode and melt. When this song is done, the speakers in your car are going to be smoking and on fire because it's just it's just chaos. I mean, it's they're just the guitars are so distorted. They almost sound it's almost like you can't even wrap your ears around the noise of those guitars. It's just so it's just massive, right? I would love to hear like a really good mix of that song on an amazing sound system. So you could maybe hear some of the details that are in there. Then through the eyes of Ruby, I would say this is the porcelain of disc two. You know, this is like that, that big feeling song, the way it builds with the guitars. Ooh, another, I, the pumpkins are at their best when they give time to, for a song to be sprawling and huge, right? When it can really expand and go soft and then, come back loud and strong and solo, you know, the Starlas, the Drowns, you know, these songs. I love it. Then we, right after that, after this huge song, we get to Stumbling, we get quiet again. And then XYU, we're back up, ripping, another heavy, really shows this band of this live crazy. Then we get to the weird ones, you know, the, the We Only Come Out at Night. They played this on the last tour 
that I saw last year. They played We Only Come Out at Night with some pictures. And We Only Come Out at Night is this is that part when I talked earlier about you get to disc two and you're kind of at a level of fatigue, right? You've you've been through so much music. You're like, how much more can I take? And you get to this crazy thing and it feels like it's like out of a children's book. It feels like a, a kid's song. But I when I saw it on tour with the images, I was like, oh, it really did spark a lot of nostalgia and love of that time. Um, and at the time, I you know, it was definitely one of the one of the tracks that you 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 could skip it at the time because you were like, I don't know if I'm feeling this right now. But now I it's it's really embedded into the part of the story of melancholy, the cohesive art that is this album and why it fits there. Why we only come out at night fits perfectly right after XYU and into beautiful. And then we get to beautiful, you know, that has that beat, that beat to it, you know, and this is really kind of a glimpse as to where we're going to be headed with, you know, I and some of the stuff on a door. We're starting to get a glimpse of, what can be done when working with flood and adding a little bit of that, you know, techno, the beats, the rhythms, the electronica, um, which would really influence so much of what um, the pumpkins would go on to do. And Billy Corgan would go on to do as a artist and a musician and really embracing so much more of the synth and the keys and the beats, which I, I really do like. I mean, I love it when he plays guitar. I love it when he shreds because he's such an amazing guitar player. And the whole band, they're all so great when they rock and play their instruments. But there's a there's a time and a place for those beats and those synths. And I think that they're they're good. But I still love it when they rock. And I'm I I I've heard through, you know, various sources that the next thing to come out is gonna have a lot more guitars, a lot more of that to it, and I'm looking forward to it. Because the past few albums have been a lot of synth, have been a lot of electronica. And I just want I want to hear some of that guitar again. Um, then we get to Lily, my one and only again, it's got that twangy little kind of country guitar in there. It's a sleepy kind of small town song. Then we get to, you know, by starlight. Oh, dead eyes. What a, what an incredible song. I mean, really, I know I kind of raced down the list here, but I just wanted to at least touch on all of these songs. And then, and then we close out with Farewell and Good Night, where every member of the band sings a verse. And they all sing together the first time they'd ever done that. And uh, it really closes it out. Now, on the vinyl release of this in 1995, when they released that, there were two other songs on the vinyl. There was a Tonight reprise, reprise, where it's a little acoustic Tonight Tonight. And then there was a song called Infinite Sadness that kind of closed out the album as a bookend to the opening, opening song. So it was an instrumental and it was kind of, again, like a theater piece that would close everything out, kind of make it feel like, okay, the book is closing now. The curtains are closing. The journey's over. Time to go home. Right. But it's not included on the CD. It's not included on these releases at this time. It's only on that vinyl. But you can find it now in these bonus and deluxe editions. I think it's on the Airplane Flies High, the the deluxe edition. So you can hear those songs. Um, But that is... You know, I think I've talked the longest I ever have on on an album with barely talking about the album and more talking about my experience of the album. Um, But I hope it meant something to everybody to kind of talk about depression and sadness and that you're not alone and that we feel together. And this is what unites us and brings us together. And. This album is massive. It's huge. It's all over the place with like different tones and styles. If you haven't spent any time with it, you should absolutely get into melancholy in the infinite sadness. You should definitely experience this masterpiece. It's a masterpiece. It's one of the greatest albums from the nineties. And I, I Siamese dream is my favorite, but you cannot argue that they did it. They made a double disc album and it was awesome. It was awesome. It is awesome. It, it stands the test of time. It's it's a monument. It's a shrine to where we were in 1995, and it'll always be there. It just feels like it was like it was the most important one of the most important musical pieces to come out for me personally. I might be being a little hyperbolic. I might be being a little overexcited, but it was massive. And like you like like you heard, it came at a time when I was really really sad and really going through a difficult time and going on antidepressants and feeling alone and 
having this relationship that was a long distance experience and just struggling so much that no one can ever take that away from me. I don't care what stupid band forum where you get in arguments and you go back and forth about what's better than this or what's better than that. Fuck all that noise. Love what you love. Like what you like. Let everything mean something to you because it does and that's just it. You don't have to explain yourself. Nothing is cringe if it means something to you. People who say cringe are, they have nothing to bring to the table. Or they're too scared to just live and express themselves for once. They just have too many voices on the inside that tell them that's not cool or that's not okay or you have to do this, you can't do that. You, it, this journey ends in a couple hundred years. No one will know we even existed. It's just here today, gone tomorrow. I just, you know, just live every day. Carpe diem. I'm like dead poet society, right? Suck the marrow out of life. Carpe diem. It's just a gift to be able to share this stuff with you now. I don't know if there's any other stories I can really tell about the making of this album. This this was a this was an episode that was more about my experience of it all. But I I have so many fond memories of these songs and I think you I could still play it start to finish and be transported back to this time and then a lot of these songs the way that I feel about them now as a grown man with children um, I can't even imagine how I'll feel about melancholy and the infinite sadness in another 10, another 20 years. But I'm thankfully I own the repressing of the vinyl. I got that. Finally, I have my original double disc. I have this t-shirt, you know, I, I would love to have just about anything that says melancholy on it. Cause it, you know, and that's, again, that's that funny thing about the spelling, right? Here came this album that was melancholy, not, not even spelled the right way. Classic Billy Corgan to do that classic to call it some from a common word and then split it up and make it unique like that. But this album is huge. It won so many awards, so many nominated for Grammys and MTV awards and music video awards and got them all the praise. Um, but it really was the last big hurrah before the began, the band began to splinter and fall apart. Um, so it's a special time. Now, they would rise from the ashes and really go on to make some amazing music. And they still continue to this day. Billy still creates music to this day. I love the fact that James, Jimmy, and Billy are all together and making music with these new members. And I'm a fan, and I'll always buy and listen to and enjoy what they put out. Because it, it's just the, that's just how I feel about it. You know, all those people that say like, well, it's just not as good. This album isn't as good as blah, 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 blah. Insert whatever your favorite album is. I just enjoy what I enjoy. And some mean more to me like this one. This one means a lot, means a lot. Um, But I just enjoy being a fan of this band and a fan of what they're doing musically and stylistically and where we're headed next. I just think it's fun. I enjoy it. So that was melancholy and the infinite sadness by the smashing pumpkins. I think I talked about everything. I think I talked primarily about me and my life. I hope, I hope that was okay. I hope it was okay. Cause if you tune in and you thought we're just going to be digging into the facts and stories behind this album, I know a lot of the stories about laying down the songs and the energy of what was going on in the band at the time and seeing them on the road and the tragedy of those deaths on tour and where they were going after. I know a lot of those stories, but today I just wanted to talk about, when it landed in my lap and how I experienced it and how it got me through one of the toughest years of my adolescent life. I've had many more difficult years as an adult and I'm doing okay. Don't worry. Um, I'll be all right. I've made it this far. That sadness is there, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> I'm still just, <laughs> I keep going. I keep going, you know, um, and, and you making this show and talking about music and making videos to those of you who love it and enjoy it means the world and really does fill my heart with so much joy and love. And I feel so lucky. That's it. We got to wrap this up. So uh, make sure you share waterproof records with your friends, with your family. 
um, let him know that I'm very passionate and that sometimes it gets a little weepy. Sometimes it gets a little emotional and heavy, but I do it out of love and wanting to share my story and my experience so you can join me in this process. Um, thank you again for joining me this week. Make sure to check out distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof for that 30% off your first year. And again, I can't make this show without you supporting it and letting people know about it. So if you want to spread the word, tell people to listen, check it out. Give me those comments on iTunes or anywhere else you can write reviews um, and write into me and let me know, you know, um, people have made corrections about things that I've gotten wrong and told me and I'm open to those. I don't like I said, I'm not a historian. I'm not possibly should have a little warning at the beginning of my shows that say like, you know, some of these things factually might not be right. I'm just talking about experience and what my experience was. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess things up. You know, it's going to happen. Um, but I feel so lucky. Thank you. I'm rambling. I'm rambling. It's just been a lot to talk through. So thank you for joining me on waterproof records. I've been your host, Jacob Givens. Thanks for talking about melancholy and the infinite sadness by the smashing pumpkins with me. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. That kind of body, I'm gonna...